Speaking about being tested by the Lord, how many people like to be tested? How many people like to fail tests? How many people like to pass a test? Isn't it nice when you pass a test? How about when you're prepared for a test? You ever go to a test when you're prepared? There's nothing better than being prepared for a test. And there's nothing worse when you're not prepared. Being tested can be very awkward at times. And I want to talk about how God does test our hearts at times. Are you a Christian? God is going to test your heart. Whether you know it or not, I will start in an Old Testament text. Chapter 2, verse 16. I'll read chapter 3. I'll make some comparisons between us and Israel. And then I'll move to the New Testament to see how God tests our heart. Uh, specifically in materialism. I know none of us are materialists here. Uh, we're kind of uh, content people, aren't we? We don't need any more. We don't want any more. We desire nothing more. We'll just live with what we have. And as a matter of fact, what we have, we'll give it all away and we'll live with nothing. We'll take a, a vow of poverty. That's what we're going to do here as American Christians. But the truth of the matter is materialism uh, attacks all of us. As a matter of fact, we're born with it in our blood. It's in our pagan blood. Uh, so we're going to look at that today and how God deals with it. Let's go to Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Starting in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. Who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars of Canaan. It was only in order that that generation of people might know war, to teach war to those who do not have known it before. These are the nations, the five, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Limo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we might not think we live amongst the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, but we live amongst greed, Father God. We live amongst materialism, Father God. We live in a land that worships things and not the creator, Father God. A land that chases after anything but you, Father God. 
And we live amongst the people, Father God, that have made everything and anything an idol for them to possess and to aspire to. It's the goal and intention of their life. More, 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 God. Help us. How do we live in such a culture, God? How do we have pure worship to you? How do we not bow the knee to this idol of the day? Help us, we ask, God. Teach us lessons. Give us the warfare we need to know, God. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okie dokie. I want to open it with a question. Does God still test our hearts today? Is he snooping around watching everything we do? How we spend every nickel? Hoping to catch us doing something wrong. Maybe he can swoop down and give it to us real good. How's that sound? All right. The answer is not snooping around. And he's not going to bash us over the head. He doesn't have to. He knows everything. What he wants to do is he wants to purge all those lesser desires that we have naturally as human beings. We're sinners. And we got pagan idolatrous blood that we're born into. And so what the, the Israelites had to learn, God does that in sanctification in our life. He removes those other loves So the only thing left is a true love for Christ. Because he loves us so much. And we all know that we can be distracted by things sometimes. I gotta tell my wife all the time, you know, I really wish I could love you the way I really want to love you. Because I get distracted by things. I love my wife, she loves me. But we get distracted. We got work, we got this, we got that. We can do the same thing with the Lord. Whether it's a horizontal relationship, a vertical relationship, distractions can come in and we might not experience the relationship the way God has intended it to be. Am I right? Does that make sense? But he does test our hearts. He tests our desires. What are we really made of? What really makes us tick in any 24-hour period? Uh, Do we really have genuine faith that sees God as the greatest gift of all things, that with God I need nothing else? That he will supply all my needs according to his riches and grace? Whether it's just daily bread or a vacation, whatever it might be. Whatever I need, can I trust that God will provide for that? Or do I have to take matters into my own? That's the problem. Is God a priority of life? Or is he the priority of life? We have a lot of priorities. I, do. I want to go to the gym. I want to do this. I got a lot of things. I want to get my handicap down. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not playing many better golf than I did years ago. But it's a little bit of a priority. But the point is, what's the great priority of life? And if we all answered that question seriously, we'd all say God. But it's God has to bring our life into line with that. So testing, sanctification, it's always God bringing us into a greater line. Let me give you an example. I had a friend of mine, I was witnessing to him. At the time of his life, it was kind of crazy. He, he became wealthy real quick. And, but he was still empty. And we had long talks. I talked to him about the gospel and, and so on and so forth. And uh, he started coming to church. He started coming to the men's study. He was going back about 15, 18 years ago. He was doing well. And he goes, well, Brian, I want to tell you why I'm coming to church. He goes, he did what a lot of wealthy people do when something's missing. He hired a life coach. All right? Got himself a life coach. Put life in order for him. And so he came to me one day with a graphic, a schematic, a pie. 
I'm sure you know what the, the graphic is. And then I, I don't remember all of the, the pieces of the pie, but the number one was eight hours of sleep. This is for the good life. If you want to have the good life, this is the life coach was telling him. He showed it to me. Eight hours of sleep is mandatory. Like you're going to get eight hours of sleep. Come on. Okay. Then you had to have four to five hours of exercise a week. Then you had to have social time. You had to have play time. You had to have downtime. And in the right-hand corner, in red, this big, was spirituality or God. And that's where I came in. Because that's why I'm here. Can't make this up. I can't make this up. He came. I didn't shoot that down right away. I want you to know I could have came blasting on that. But I know I said this has no shelf life to it at all. So I waited until the wheels started falling off. Because you can only follow that for a little while. After a while, you know, it's like juggling. You know, you can't. You're juggling. You're, you're using your feet. Then something else is thrown into the mix. And sooner or later, that falls flat on. And it did. Because the money dried up. And so did the pie. It was all over. You didn't need the pie anymore. You had no money. Life became real. And I, the sad to say that he's still in my life, but he's not doing well at all. So I still pray for him, I still meet him, and I still reach out to him and keep that bridge alive. But that's the point. That's the, what the world does. God is not a piece of the graphic in the right-hand corner. Jesus is the whole pie. And he doesn't want to share our love and our heart and our affections with anything else but himself. But we come with these loves. We, we, we love things and we love acquisitions and we, we, we love our hopes for more. But really, it all leaves empty at the end of the day. It really doesn't fulfill. Only God can fulfill. But yet many Christians and all of us, it's not about those Christians and those against those Christians. It's, we all live in this country and we can all be part of it. And we have to be careful of it. We have to be careful of bowing the knee to materialism. God's testing is always designed for our good, to reprioritize our life, so that God becomes the center of it, and everything else revolves around Him. If you know Old Testament biblical theology, uh, everything was centered around the tabernacle. Everything. Israel's whole nation, its existence was built around the tabernacle in the land of plenty. But the blessing came from the Holy of Holies. It came from the presence of God. It came from where the Ark of the Covenant was. It came from where the presence of God was, where the Ten Commandments was. Obedience to this God in that tabernacle would bless you everywhere else in life. All the nations, the 12 nations were saturated, were surrounded, surrounded the Ark or the covenant surrounded the tabernacle. That's the center of religious life. For us, it's Christ. We don't have a centrally located place. We don't worship on the mountain, and we don't worship in the city. God is looking for true worshipers who worship in what? Wherever we go is genuine worship, and we bring a pure heart to God, and God is always doing this for us. This is our promised land. Where all our thoughts are preoccupied with the service of God, our desired motivating uh, uh, characteristic of our life is to please God. There is no greater motivation for life than to wake up wanting to please God. All our actions, all our deeds, because we want to please God, brings meaning to every minor detail of life. 
There's no mundane thing when you're a Christian who wants to please God and serve God. Because you find opportunity everywhere to serve God. In the minute, in the big. So let's go to our ancient text there. Let's see what we can find out. How it's speaking to us today. I chose this text because it clearly speaks about how God's testing the hearts of his people. Though the plays have changed, uh, you know, from Old Testament Jews under the law to New Testament Christians living under grace, the covenant changed, the testament has changed, but God's still a saint. Amen? Amen? And he still wants us to, to, to worship him. The message in this text is a timeless message for all believers. God requires exclusive allegiance. Can you say that? Exclusive allegiance, period. Not a piece of the pie on Sunday at 4 o'clock. I got my little spirituality in. That's not what God wants. He's got more for us. He wants us to taste just how awesome he is, how incredible he is. He wants to turn us on to himself. And that's what it means to be born again. And now we grow in that, and we desire that, and we long for that. More and more in our life. God plays no second fiddle to anything or anyone or any place. Anything less than that is idolatry. It's idolatry. The difference between the Old Testament Jew and the New Testament Christian is that God saved the Jews from Egypt and all their false gods and was bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the promised land. And and Joshua went in. He did a great job. Joshua did a wonderful job of securing the land. But there was a little mopping up to do. There were some inhabitants that Joshua didn't fully chase out. Was it an unfinished job? Was Joshua delinquent in his duties? We find out from our text that God left them there. There was a problem. You know, there's things still in my life. When I got saved, so many things went from my life. Cussing, basically, overnight. A lot of things, basically, overnight, things just, because the love of God came in. Other desires, overnight. But then there are some things that just don't go. And I remember crying out, saying, God, why? Why? And it's this text that over 20 years ago spoke to my heart. Because I'm teaching you warfare. And we don't take sometimes faith as a warfare thing. But understand something. we got to be adamant in our faith. we got to stare down certain things that are in our hearts. Stare down certain things in the culture and make a true stance. Otherwise, we will bow down to it and not even know it. So understand something. I'm just making a, a correlation over here, okay? There are things that are left in our life. I believe God purposely allows things, and they're painful. Please understand something. They're, they're painful, but it teaches us warfare, and the foundation of all warfare is dependence on God. Dependence on God. Israel was supposed to remove the idolatry far from the land. By removing the people, by removing the nations, they would have cleaned house, they would have cleaned the promised land and, and quarantined the nation and the temple from all false worship around them. That was their job, it was their mission, it was their duty. They would have been preoccupied with cleansing the land of all defilement. That's what they were called to do. They were called to be a warring nation. That's what Joshua did in his generation, and the generations after Joshua should have done the same thing. 
But the unfinished business of driving out the inhabitants was divine oversight. It was there for a purpose. It was there for a reason. There were things in your life, there were things in my life that are there for reasons of purpose that God knows to strengthen us. It had two reasons. One was to test the people. The first one was, uh, how can I say? One was religious. It was good to give Israel an opportunity to say these wonderful words. Are you with me? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said that. He goes, I don't know what you're going to do, but when you go in and you're going to drive out the inhabitants, if you don't, there are going to be thorns and thistles in your side. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Doesn't that sound sweet? God gave them opportunity to do that. He gives us opportunity to stare down temptations in our life and the culture we live in and say, no, I'm going to serve the Lord. I have decided. We sing sing that wonderful song. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's it. I don't care if anybody else is going in my direction. I'm going. That's what Joshua said. I don't care what anybody else does. God has blessed you now. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Everything else around you is false. It's empty. They give you promises, all these false gods. There had to be something. If you read the Old Testament, Israel loved idolatry. They loved it. They constantly fell into it. Our text tonight in only 12 verses of scripture said they kept on going. After the judge died, they chased other gods. See, we don't realize we'll go into one thing tonight. How seducing idolatry is. It's seducing. It offers a promise. It just does not deliver. It doesn't deliver. The bedrock of biblical religion, the bedrock of your life, is this one thing. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. If that is living in your heart, I don't need to be told to make an image. I don't need to be told to not covet my neighbor's wife or his home or to kill or to steal. Because the bedrock is we shall serve no other God. This is the commandment that's the priority of life. Every other commandment, law, rule, everything else just falls into place once we have this set in our hearts. That's number one. The second reason the testing of people was instructional. To teach warfare, basically. Teach them what real faith is. This was a time when pagan nations did not die easy. I don't know if you know that. Read the Old Testament. They didn't die. They didn't, they didn't run away because Israel was came. Israel came. They fought back. And just because your fathers drove many of them out doesn't mean they're not going to come back. Understand something. Or Which is even more sinister is that it only takes a little bit of the remnant to corrupt the whole lump. What does Jesus say? What does Paul say? A little leaven spoils the whole lump. We're going to see tonight. Bad company corrupts good morals. They would go there and clean house. Be careful. Don't intermarry with them. Otherwise, you're going to serve their gods. Genuine worship of God in the Old Testament needed to be supplemented and supported with a strong military presence. 
Satan doesn't quit easily. You think Satan doesn't care because you're saved? Oh, look how saved they are. I'm not going to tempt them with drugs anymore. I'm not going to tempt them with sex anymore. I'm not going to tempt them with uh, materialism anymore. I'm not going to tempt them with pride and position and prominence anymore. I'll just leave them alone. I'll go into into my cave and hide. Look how powerful they are. Oh, man, Satan doesn't die easily. He doesn't lay down on the job. He's coming after us. He went after them. He's coming after us. And that's where me and you come in today. God is still teaching these same principles today in sanctification. He's removing the idolatrous pagan blood that's still in our hearts. See, God didn't save us out of an Egypt. He saved us out of Satan's grip and sin. And he forgave us. And the war is over. I'm saved. I'll always be saved. And no one will snatch you or me out of Christ's hands. Eternity is guaranteed. It's mine. It is yours. We win the war. Then sanctification is mopping it all up. There's no threat of ever losing the war. But now from this safe position of no condemnation, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The hope of glory, Christ is in us. We're sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. He's a pledge of eternal life. You can't take it away. Now from the safe position of being with the Lord, He teaches me warfare. He teaches me of removing the other desires I came to Christ with and I don't even know they're there. There are things in your heart your mind doesn't know about yet. You live long enough... You'll desire some strange things. And the Lord comes and he removes this kind of stuff out of us. And I really want to speak as we go on into materialism, how it's everywhere. He wants us to come to a place where it's Jesus and no other. That is it. It's instructional. It's spiritual warfare. It's strong faith. But it's not just strong faith for strong faith. It's strong faith in a compromising world. It's everywhere. You can't go anywhere without something telling you if you don't have more, you're not successful. You're not living up. You're missing out on life. Contentment and godliness, see, that's for the Christian. That's, that's for those people. It's not, if you're real life, you want more of what America has to give. While I'm watching people chase after more, like my friend who was chasing after so much, he lost it all. And almost lost himself. Satan and idolatry are like chameleons. They just change from age to age. They change the appearance over centuries. But Satan and idolatry is still in with us. It's like, it's like uh, it sneaks around unnoticed like carbon monoxide. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. And you can't see it. But guess what it does? You can't smell it but it's deadly. And it brings a slow death. And that's the kind of culture we live in. It can bring a slow death. And if we don't have... I I don't know if I ever shared this one. We had this little beep going off. Beep. Three months. Beep. Beep. I'm like, I gotta change the battery. And the fire detector. I didn't know I had a carbon monoxide detector in there. And it would go beep for three months. So I so said, what's going on? And the fireman comes up and he goes, you, you place a saturator with carbon monoxide. We had a leak in the back of the stove for months. It was all corroded. 
He goes, you got to get out of the to move out of the house for three days. And, and they fixed the whole thing. And they, I, had the, I had the warning, be, be, but it was an annoyance to me. By God's grace, me and Terry are still here. The real man of the house. I, I can't change the battery. I thought it was a battery. Oh, God, forgive me. There's only one thing that can... You need the fire... You need the carbon monoxide detector. There's only one detector for Satan's schemes. Do you know what it is? It's the word of God. That is it. The world doesn't know it's seduced by Satan. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. The whole world is seduced by Satan. Tell that to the intellectual elite of the day. Oh, do you know that you are seduced... By Satan. They think we're nuts. They think we're nuts. See, only the word of God teaches you what's going on. We got to adhere to the word of God. I'm glad everybody knew that answer. Let's see where we are today, okay? Remember, no one's perfect in this. No one's perfect in these areas. God saves us in spite of all our other loves. Can you say that? God saves us in spite of all our other loves. And we come with many. We love ourselves, don't we? We love comfort. We love convenience. We love more. We love luxury. We love delusional dreams of grandeur and oh, romanticism. We can go off the charts over here. But God saves us in spite of then he removes all these other loves that we have. He wants us to have this sweet, unbroken fellowship with Him. He wants us to see the seduction that's around and its emptiness. And not just to worship Him and love Him and enjoy Him, but to be used by Him in the lives of other people. Yes. Are you with me? Amen. We need to be aware of our personal idols and the cultural idols around us. Materialism is one of the big ones. They were called, do not worship the knee to Baal. Is anybody worshiping Baal? That was an honest answer. I hope not. Of course, we're not bowing the knee to Baal. But our heart can and not know it. You see, Baal was the fertility god. And the fertility God, you bow down to the fertility God not just to have more children, but more crops. He was the storm God. He's the God who brought the rain. With more rain means more vegetation, more crops, more flocks, more herds, more prosperity. And it turned into a seducing voice. Instead of, God never said, pray to me and I'll give you reins. God said, obey me and I give you everything. Amen. That's all. I, give, I gave you the land of promise. Just obey me and you keep it. It's yours. Mm-hmm. It's yours to enjoy. Mm-hmm. You don't have to beg me or borrow from me and plead with me to give you rain. It's my joy to give you rain. I'm giving you a land of milk and honey. I'm giving you the land of prosperity. It's yours. Just obey me. Enjoy me. And I'll enjoy you. But that wasn't good enough to them. They'd rather have disobedience. And then plead with a foreign God for the more God would have naturally gave them. They wanted more their way. 
You can go to churches today and you go worship Jesus and they're going to tell you how rich you're going to get. It's the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Today in America, many people equate God with more. The poster children of preachers on television and the books they're selling with the big smiles of God has everything for you today. It's almost like I got to buy them. I almost bought the book. It looks so good. I said, this looks like a good book. It's only 169 pages. I can knock that out in a couple of days. Maybe I'm missing something. Seducing. That's what these idols had. It had some kind of seducing promise to it. And before you know it, you bite into it. And guess what? Like an addict. You got to have more. I got to bring more sacrifices. So bad did it get Did you know what they sacrificed to Baal? Their children. The chicken wasn't enough. The rooster wasn't enough. The rains aren't coming, so I have to give my... They sold their soul. If you worship this idol properly and reverently with deep devotion, you too will prosper. You know, we cannot serve God and mammon. It's an easy, clear, New Testament principle. You cannot serve two gods. You're going to hate one and, you're going to hate one and love the other or despise one and ignore the other. You can't do it. We live in such a highly materialistic culture that values stuff more than God. We're living amongst the Canaanites. We're living amongst the Jebusites and the, and the Hivites and the Philistines. They love the worship of Baal. They love the worship of anything more than the true God. This is where we live today. So when we read this Old Testament text and we go, that's so far away from me. When you pull back a layer or two and you realize what's going on, there is nothing new under the... Nothing new. The world thinks we're crazy. We get together and we read out of something that's 3,500 years old. All week I thought about a story 3,500 years old. And I was in love with Jesus. My heart was challenged. It was speaking to me as I had sandals on and some big long robe with a staff and I was walking through the desert as Joshua was being uh, uh, tested and, and everybody, that's the way I felt because we still live in a materialistic, immoral society that loves everything else but God. The word of God is timeless. The message is timeless. I love it. God is so good to us. So, so good to us. We live amongst the Canaanites. We live in a materialistic culture that has bowed the need to bow. They'll sacrifice their children. Parents will work 10 jobs and not spend a moment with their children to love their children because they're looking for the American dream. They're sacrificing their children to bow. Don't even know it. Don't even know The relationships, the husband and wife relationship is ruined. Family unions are ruined. Why? Because the American dream. Another house, another car, another vacation, another school, clothes, jewelry. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, Jesus says, comes and chokes the word out. There's no room for that and true worship of Christ. 
And with this, this covetousness comes these, with the big three come. Material brings the big three. Jealousy, envy, covetousness. That's the big three. If you're not sure what biblically, what the difference is, covetousness is a strong desire for things. That's what covetousness is. Envy is when you start to despise the people that have those things you don't have. That's the difference. There's the thing, and then there's the people. Jealousy is when you get it, you want to keep it for yourself. I'm jealous. It's mine. It's all mine. (laughs) It's all mine. Sound familiar? This undermines any healthy... How can you love and worship Christ with this going on in the heart? But God has to fortify us. He has to inoculate us from this strong cultural idol that we can gravitate towards. It undermines every healthy relationship. We've got to go back to the first commandment. What is the greatest desire in your heart? What's the greatest desire in my heart? I constantly have to keep an eye on this. Jesus says, be careful of all forms of covetousness. All forms. All its nuances. All its beguiling nature. You don't even realize it's in us. Man. They have a great voice. Oh man, that guy's a great teacher. That guy can preach. That guy, look at the size of that church. Look at everything. Man, you can covet anything and everything if you're not careful. Everything. There's only really one good antidote I know not to covet. Praise God for that man. Bless them, God. Bless them. They're prospering. Praise God. That's it. Admiration. Give it to them, God. And what lies behind covetousness and pride and envy is pride and self-deception of no real genuine character. Money makes people think they're above the law of God. People think they're going to buy themselves into heaven. I'll build the wing. I'll donate a pew. I'll buy some food. People are constantly telling me, what does the church need? All the time. What can I do for the church? I said, come to church, get saved. God wants you. He doesn't want you to be anything. I don't need anything. I got the Lord. But you know what you need this? I know I want you to come. Leave the food home. I have a guy coming here, give him food, give him food. Three months he was giving him food. Come to food. I said, when are you going to sit down and listen to the word of God? People think you can buy God. Because you can buy everything else. But God. They'll find out. They'll find out. Unfortunately, if they don't find out on this side of heaven, they have to find out on the other side. People think they're above the Lord God. They think they don't have to put genuine faith in Christ. They think they don't need to repent of their sinful lives and say, Jesus, I need you more than money. I need you more than anything. Like the rich young ruler who was told, sell all your possessions and follow me. He couldn't do it. As much as he wanted eternal life, he was wealthy, the scriptures say. And he walked away. 
This, is, this scenario is commonplace today as it, it was 3,500 years ago. And even listen to Paul. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This scenario is a commonplace today in the church. Paul's talking about the church. He's not talking about the world. Listen. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. I love Paul's reasoning. Yeah. How simple can you get? What a maxim. You brought nothing into the world. You can take nothing out of the world. End of the story. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Look how graphic it is. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith. He's talking about the church. They've wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul's not talking about the idolatrous, pagan, Greco-Roman world of 2,000 years ago. He's talking about people he might have led to Christ. These Christians lost the test. They didn't learn warfare. Money won. They lost. You know, six, verse 6, 7, 8. Listen. Acquisition is good. It's good. To acquire is good. But we should be acquiring contentment and godliness is great gain. That means, but it should be Christ-like contentment with life the way God has designed it. Found in Christ. That's great gain. Materialism is transitory. It's dangerous. And it's an enemy of genuine faith. Many people have wandered from the faith. Anything that gets you or I to wander from the... Is an enemy of the... You cannot serve God and... It's there. It's real. These people were there. They saw the miracles. They probably saw Paul on his miracle campaign in Ephesus. His miracle campaign in Corinth. He was, he, they were taking a handkerchief from him and he was, people were being healed. But yet that wasn't staying power. It wasn't meant to be staying power. It was a sign that the gospel is amongst you. That's the sign. One scholar says materialism is a desire to possess things instead of a love for God who made those things. Another commentator says contentment is one of the greatest assets of life. And we in America can, can also come to this craving without realizing it. It's a slow death. Uh, It's a slow death. Paul tells Timothy and us today to flee this temptation. That's the only thing. This this craving, it means to aspire to. What he uses, the Greek word craving is to, it's the goal in life. It's it's the same word used to 
If any man among you aspires to be a deacon or be an elder, chapter 3, same book, it's a good thing. There's a longing to serve God. There's a longing to serve God's people. That's a good thing to aspire to. The same word is used here as a craving. That's really an enemy. The only answer is to flee one and pursue something else. Can we put on... Can we put that back there? But as for you, old man, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, and gentleness. Do you know something about those, those attributes there? They're all intangibles. Anybody can acquire it. You don't need money for it. You don't need an education. It's all right there. That's contentment with great gain. Serving God. Righteousness is our relationship between each other. Godliness is Christ-likeness. Exemplified Christ in our life. Faith is a faith that you see the gospel alive in our life. That Jesus is the son of the living God. Love for each other. Steadfastness. Again, faithfulness to, to stay the course. And of course, all gentleness. The, the list can go on and on. These are intangibles. Don't question nothing. It's yours. You want to know something? It's already in you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. You don't go buy that. You live it. You live it. You serve one another. You serve Christ. Whatever belongs to you belongs to the Lord. Whatever you have in your life belongs to the Lord. It belongs to his people. Whatever God has given me is not mine. He can come and say, I want you to do this with that. Your time, your energy, your money, your clothing, your possessions, it belongs to the Lord. The first thing that comes to mind is the rich man. The materialistic, hard-headed, materialistic rich man. Do you know you can be wealthy and free from the love of money? And you can be poor as poor can be, and your heart could be filled with the love of money. It's not about what you have. It's about what you desire. It has nothing to do with where you are on the, the a socioeconomic spectrum. Greed in the heart leaves the heart empty, even more empty than it was before. Let me close with some application. We need to be immune, if we can, to this craving in the world for more, that things are going to make us happy. We have to be, we have to learn this kind of warfare, that even if God blesses us with material things, the life is not in the gift, it's in the giver. And whatever God has given us, it's never for us, it's for the common good. Lately, I've been saying, you know, I'm getting a little older. I'm like, you know, watch over my health, watch over my health. I'm sure a lot of us people praying for that. Anybody praying for their health? 
And God said, well, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, oh, so I can go do this, that? And I started naming the things I would do. Guess who it was about? It was about me. Keep me healthy so I can serve I had to get on my knees and say, God, forgive me. What about pushing a wheelchair? What about helping people? I'll keep you healthy. I'll, I'll, I'll let you serve. Do you want to serve me till 95 years old? I'll keep you healthy. Are you going to give me your health in the service of others? I had to, get, I had to repent. I had to repent. You see, it's in us. It's in us. It's there. We've got to be careful of it. We're at the center of so much and we don't even realize it. We live in a culture that bows the need of materialism, bows the need of more, bows the need to self-fulfillment, self-gratification, instant gratification. And here I am, God knows we love him, God knows you love him, and God has to slowly do this testing and this operation to remove these lesser loves out of our life because they get in the way. They get in the way of any meaningful relationship. First and foremost, my relationship with Christ. Then my relationship with my family, my church family, my friends, acquaintances, and even the enemies gets in the way. Let's be careful of this idol of the culture. Let's be careful of the seducing spirit. Don't let anything take away quality time with God or his people in the name of more. God has given us everything we ever needed. Amen? Let's enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you that the word of God is the great detective, Father. Thank you that we wouldn't even see these things that lie in our heart if it wasn't for the word of God challenging us, testing us, prompting us to come up higher and to walk with you in more holiness and and to know how rich it is to be godly and content in this world of more and materialism and greed, Father God, where you're nowhere to be found and if you are to be found, you're a Coke machine to put $2 in and get their soda out of, Father. Forgive us if we have attached anything Anything selfish to our relationship with you, God, forgive us. Help us to be generous. Help us to be given. Help us to be benevolent. And when we see others prosper, help us to have admiration and, and, to, and to rejoice with those who rejoice, God. And not fall into covetousness or envy or jealousy or pride or self-delusion, Father God. Let us be content with steadfastness, faith. Love uh, and, and these things, Father God, that you give us by your grace through your spirit, Father God. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much in Jesus' name.